You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We're only days away from the start of the NFL season, but we're only days removed from the full kickoff of all of the glory and greatness known as college football. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests will join us on the Goodyear Hotline, and you can be part of Spain and Fitz Nation on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed, ESPN Nation, presented by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. And it was incredible to see the imagery of the fans over the course of the weekend. Sarah, we've talked about it a lot on the show in general and how you know torn at times I feel when I watch all this because I want everybody to be safe, obviously. But there was a magic in in the air as we saw the college football world over the course of the weekend. And I don't know that there was a game that was more captivating than Clemson, Georgia. Now, for anyone that didn't see, Annabelle, my uh, beloved puppy, is now undefeated in her picks. Mm-hmm. She picked she Georgia to win the game. Uh, maybe she knew something that the rest of us should have figured out because Clemson uh, loses the game, and now we have the AP poll. Georgia hops all the way up to number two, the number two team in all the land after that win. A huge weekend for them. Yeah, that was a huge win. I was uh, following along vicariously with uh, L. Duncan, who was nervous all day, and then chesty as hell after the win, walking down the street, barking mm-hmm. at strangers, trying to figure out how to express her emotions. It wasn't a pretty game, Fitz. It was absolutely not a pretty game. Two rushing yards for Clemson. I thought it was a, a typo. I thought it was an error. I went to check. So... I'm of the opinion that it was so bad and looked so rough and such an early, obvious week one start for Clemson that if they take drastic strides and look really good at the end, the committee will look back and say that was the toughest week one matchup in the history of the current system. And we're okay with moving past that, looking at the rest of the season. If they put together a great rest of the season as sort of, as sort of a mulligan, I think it was almost better than if it had been a smooth, well-played high scoring game that they lost. Well, I don't disagree with that actually. And I I think there's so much to take away from that game that I, I have to say loudly. The one thing I wish wouldn't happen is tremendous consequence to playoff for scheduling something like that at the beginning of the year because it's great for college football when you get that sort of non-conference powerhouse matchup to start the season, right? Like, to me, it was such a win for college football fans to see Clemson take on Georgia. What I don't want is for the consequence of that to become so heavy that teams avoid scheduling that at the beginning of the year. That being said, though... There is an issue with the rest of the schedule. And, and look, th- this is without being hot takey on what's left. The ACC had a bad weekend. I, saw, I talked about it on College Football Live today. Seven of the 14 teams in that conference took a loss, and there were some embarrassing losses. And some of the teams we hoped would be good, like Miami and North Carolina, didn't look very good. So now I'm looking at Clemson, and I'm saying, man, part of the issue here and part of the, the reason the rest of the season I think is challenging for them is there aren't a lot of good teams left for them to beat. So they're going to beat everybody else on their schedule. But does that really matter all that much if everybody else on their schedule stinks? Yeah, it's going to be a problem, right? And I think you're right. It could absolutely scare teams away from scheduling that super important game early on. But I also think we always do the hand-wringing early in the season about strength of schedule, and there's so many ups and downs, right? There are some games in the first couple weeks that we're going to talk about what a stamp they made with a big win over fill-in-the-blank, and then that team's not going to end up being any good, and it's not going to mean much. I think in the end, the committee and everybody in America – pretty much knows who the best teams are going to be before they even start. And if you get to the end of the season and one of those teams looks strong but had a loss, 
they will finagle their way into convincing everyone that they belong. That's still how I feel about it. Now, not everybody feels that way. Um, not everybody is convinced that you can recover from this. In fact, Heather Dinich was all over ESPN today talking about just why it feels so difficult to imagine Clemson recovering. No team has lost their season opener and made the college football playoff since this thing began in 2014. It's a big deal. It's significant, okay? And not only was Clemson hurt by the way they played and how they lost, but they were also hurt, guys, by Miami losing and North Carolina losing. Why? Because, as I heard you guys mention before, they have no other ranked opponents in the regular season. They need a ranked opponent to face in the ACC championship game, assuming they get there, because they've got one more shot to impress the selection committee based on this schedule. That's it. And right now, Miami and North Carolina aren't looking that great. So I certainly would not rubber stamp a one-loss ACC champ Clemson this year. Okay, so you seem to agree with her on a lot of those things, Fitz. I will say after that, she did go on to say it's not necessarily a no, though, because she's been around college football long enough to see plenty of things happen. And like I pointed out, never before in college football have we had a game this big this early. You could definitely create some excuses around Clemson's loss if something were to go wrong down the rest of the season because it's just unprecedented. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And look, it's a little like making early predictions, right? We can say, hey, this team's going to win. This team's going to lose for the whole season. You never know who's going to get hurt. You never know where the season's going to go. I think the case against Clemson having the rest of the year work out to their advantage is what Heather just made. And I agree with totally the case that Clemson is going to look at, though, is what an unpredictable weekend we got. Like Mm -hmm. Georgia had an amazing defensive effort, but their offense was not what any of us thought they would be. So if you're looking at Georgia, you could at least say, hey, there's the possibility of a fatal flaw. Ohio State struggled with Minnesota, which was unexpected. Oklahoma struggled to beat Tulane, and and we were shocked by how that looked. I mean, you can go up and down the list. Notre Dame blew an 18-point fourth quarter lead. I mean, I'm looking up and down the board saying, even though Alabama feels incredibly predictable, the rest of what we saw in college football for week one Actually, I'm looking at it saying it's Alabama and everybody else. So maybe that's the hope for Clemson is that it's going to turn into a Tasmanian devil sea of unpredictability. Yeah. And, and, you know, I I do think you're looking across and saying either they hope Georgia wins everything. And so that loss becomes beneficial to them somehow. Uh, Very true. Yeah. Or. We talked about this last week, you know, UNC, who they won't even face in the regular season, but maybe could face in the championship, started off with an ugly loss to Virginia Tech. So can they rebound and have a good enough stretch so that a win feels important, right? Um, And then hope for more chaos, which outside of Bama, just, you know, starting right off the bat with like another unbelievable quarterback. They've got three of their former quarterbacks starting this weekend in week one NFL action. And now Bryce Young is already setting records, potential Heisman favorite after week one. Other than Bama, which feels like they haven't lost a step, you look around and someone like LSU, five and five last year, lost to UCLA, starting to look like 2019 might be more of an aberration than an exclamation point for the beginning of an era under Ogeron. So, I mean, Oklahoma rolled out the red carpet for Tulane because of the issues with COVID and, and, or sorry, with Ida, and they needed to play away instead of at home, and they tried to make it feel at home for Tulane, almost two at home, and they almost lost, right? Take some of those games, (laughs) 
and think to yourself, if enough of those happen and you get some more upsets and more chaos, that's going to be a really big benefit for Clemson. Well, yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, it, Alabama's the only – it looks like right now today Alabama is the only sure thing that's left in any of this, and the rest of it could go any way that we could possibly see. By the way, kudos to the matchup we're going to get on game day this week is we've got Iowa-Iowa State. Great rivalry at Ames, but it's the first time ever that we've seen this rivalry matchup where both teams are ranked in the top ten. So a really cool moment for that program, obviously. We'll keep breaking down everything that happened in college football, but uh, we've got a lot to get to. So coming up. Was the student actually helping the teacher? We'll explain next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. I've got this chipper tone in my voice because there's only a few days left. There's only a few days left before I'm smacked in the face by the reality of what football season could be. But let's remember that there's a few days left for most of us before we get to the kickoff of the NFL season. Sarah, your level of excitement right now on a scale of 0 to 10 is... 25! That's what I'm talking about. That, or should I say, of... one. <laughs> With one not being the lowest number, but Justin Fields' number. Oh. And anything and everything that might happen this year all comes down to one thing. Do I have my future franchise quarterback? Do we need to win this year? It would be nice. But if we don't, and I realize that we finally, after all my years of Bears fandom, have the guy, I'll be cool. Yeah, well, I, look, I don't discount anything you just said. It's all true. I've already started justifying in my mind, by the way, like knowing that Monday nights against the Ravens, I went back and looked because the Ravens have just been lights out the last five years on their season opener. And so I looked at that and I was like, well, what's that mean? Well, the Raiders have won the last two years on their season opener and those seasons did not end in the playoffs. So even def- maybe defeat <laughs> is what we need to start this. You start the season in a hole. So you work oh, I'm back. So That's sad for you. Yeah, this is, that this is, is the most depressing thing I've ever is, heard. We're already. There, yeah, we're already there. there. I'm already justifying the possibility. Depressing thing. I mean, I just said if we don't win, it's fine as long as I mean we're both so pathetic. Yeah, this is this is. (laughs) I would love to know what it feels like to be a Patriots fan for just just like three days. Just, just Bucks, Bucks, Packers, Chiefs, Bills. I don't know. Just anyone who's like rip roaring because you and I have been beaten down so many times that over the course of our years working together, we've gone from both of us being like, this is the year, 11 wins to like us being like, "Eh, just see what happens, like enjoy whatever part of it we can. I mean, if the Raiders put up a winning season, it'll be the first one I've seen in years, and I won't know what to do. In the meantime, uh, Steelers fans always have it the right way. Like, it just feels like Steelers fans know they're going to be competitive every single year. But it's not easy this year when it comes to T.J. Watt. Now, T.J. Watt, according to you know some of our experts, is in contention to be the defensive player of the year. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they've figured out the important piece, which is the money piece. Now, keep in mind that because of some of the changes in the collective bargaining agreement, what we've seen this year are guys that in past years would have held out. Well, they haven't held out yet. They've just put themselves in a situation where they're there, but they're either not participating, but they're still around, or they're sort of being very vocal. And the the case with T.J. Watt seems to be complicated because a deal isn't done. Jeff Saturday had this to say about the Steelers and Watt. This guy whips your tackle play after play, and he improves the play of Hayward. He improves the play of Ingram. If he gets some touches, like he makes your total defense so much better. So you're talking about the the main main player on this defense being out. Whoever's holding the pin better sign that deal and get this man back playing come Sunday. 
Yeah, I, it's I a it's a huge loss if 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 they are still bickering. And so far, the issue has been he has been attending practice, but only doing individual portions. Hasn't worked out in a team setting. Our own uh, Brooke Pryor reported that expecting to they're expecting him to be a full participant starting tomorrow. Um, and Tomlin is still saying he's optimistic about the deal. But most people I'm seeing, most people who cover the team, are saying the Steelers have long withheld from negotiating during the season, and they do not think that this is going to happen for Watt during it. The only way you could spin this, fits would be maybe that they feel differently about COVID or that they can spin it as being a different situation because of COVID and go against their history when it comes to these signings. Well, remember, Watt had 15 sacks in 2020. He's not a holdout at this point, but he's only set to make, I say only, but he's only set to make $10 million. He's about to get paid. So I understand coming out and wanting to do everything he can in this situation to protect himself. Now, that's not the only weird piece of news that has come out of the NFL. I do think it's interesting that we've seen some reports at this point, and according to uh, one of our, our friends here, uh, Rob Ninkovich, he's heard through the grapevine, I cannot believe I'm saying this, that Mac Jones was actually the one teaching Cam Newton the playbook at camp over the course of the summer, that Mac was actually tutoring Cam on what's coming. That's a staggering, mm. if true, report to me, sir. 100%. Listen, I mean, I don't know of any reason why Ninkovich would say that unless it was true, but it's pretty damning for Cam. Um, just whether or not he came in late last year and had COVID and missed some time this year, there's absolutely no reason that he should be behind. And a lot of what Ninkovich said was right. Some of the situations that we saw Cam in were not ones that belied a very strong understanding of the playbook. They were, didn't put him in a lot of two minutes. They didn't put a lot of no huddles. They just... It felt like they were maybe easing him in now that we have this, you know, kind of to look at. And, you know, I do also think it's pretty easy to say these things after a decision has been made to try to explain why it happened. I think a lot of us were surprised when Cam got cut. We thought it was first Belichick being nice. Then it was about, you know, not having him around when they're trying to establish Mac as a leader. Now it feels like we're going to get to the point where we almost slander his abilities and I, like I said, I have no reason for Ninkovich to lie, but man, that doesn't look good for Cam, and that's not going to help him find a job. Yeah, and that's one of those things that's hard to shake, right? Like it's something you've mentioned before, the the sort of rumor mill circulating around Mitchell Trubisky has talked at times about the lack of sort of football intelligence, right, and the ability to learn some of the necessary things at the professional level. And certainly that's a it's a far leap to say that Cam after his career would have that issue. But when you see the fact that nobody seemed to be clamoring for him before the Patriots did for a multitude of reasons, and now he's again been cut, doesn't seem like there are a lot of options out. That's a difficult uh, piece to sort of shake. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Uh, speaking of difficult, one of the most difficult things that we're talking about right now for the Cowboys coming up on Thursday night looks like the possibility that Zach Martin might not be available for the game. ESPN NFL analyst uh, Jeff Saturday was on KJ and Max this morning talking about why this is a huge loss. If we were talking about a quarterback, Zach Martin is Patrick Mahomes at his position. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so when you keep hearing Zeke say he's the best player on our offense and you hear, you know, Jerry say, man, you know, he's a man of prayer. We're hoping he can come back and get it by Thursday. Something crazy is going to happen. All of those things because you understand literally your best player on offense is now out against probably the best front four they're going to face all season. 
Man, it can't be underestimated, and you know, Fitz, especially the fantasy players, the the the, the wide receivers, tight ends, running backs, quarterbacks. That's where we usually focus. Maybe even some of the players, you know, that we that we see making the the big picks and the dramatic defensive plays. But Zach Martin is the most important, one of the most important players on this team. He is the only player on this team that was in the NFL top hundred list. If you want to take something that you can really cling to, a tangible piece about who the best players on this team are, Zach Martin is the only Cowboy in the top 100. Well, and, and I, everybody I've talked to that I, I respect that watches a ton of film over the last few days has mentioned Vita Vea's name repeatedly with the Bucks as somebody that's going to be a difference maker on that defensive line. And when you've got all this pressure coming up the gut of the Cowboys line, and it's coming up the gut at the leg of a quarterback that was just injured. Mm-hmm. I just have to wonder, like, that's just a psyche part of it. I, I, you and I talk all the time about just the humanness of athletes in general. And there's such a human portion of Dak that I keep looking at and saying, it doesn't matter if he's healthy. He's got to get that, that first hit. We always hear that. But he's also got to get sort of comfortable knowing that there's the possibility people will be coming at his legs for an entire offensive line that has a couple of issues that could create uh, mismatches. So it, this doesn't feel favorable for Dallas to me at all. Not at all. And, you know, again, to your point, specifically with all the questions around Dak, his inability to get in during the preseason, questions about his mentals in addition to the health, and then you lose this guy that's one of your best protectors. That's tough. Yeah, well, I'm also continually looking at McCarthy saying, hey, we want to be able to evaluate who he is as a head coach with the Cowboys. Not many people can evaluate a head coach. I don't care who they are and what their past is. You can't really evaluate a head coach that has not had their starting quarterback for so much of it. And we forget that going into five games into the season last year, when you look at yards, touchdowns, uh, and quarterback rating, like Dak was putting up incredible numbers. So uh, he was putting up, he was on pace to set a new passing yardage record. So Mm -hmm. for all of the conversations about the Cowboys woes in their season last year, Uh, Much of that is fixed by having a healthy quarterback. We'll see if he can stay healthy behind that offensive line. Coming up next, we'll bring in an insider to give us a scoop on all the big stories going into the NFL season. That's next on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Hope you all had a great holiday long weekend. The fact that it's already Tuesday means we're that much closer to Thursday, which means we're that much closer to the NFL actually starting with real games that count. Oh, we're pretty pumped so up good. about it, even though we're both a little reticent to get too excited about our teams. We're still pumped about it. We're still excited. We're still on a 25 out of 10. It's Spain and Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline, and it's time for a little Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Joining us on that hotline right now, it's Yahoo Sports senior NFL reporter Charles Robinson to address the biggest NFL stories ahead of week one. Charles, thanks for the time. Let's start with uh, something I'm very interested in since my radio show went too long. I missed the first pick of my draft, and I was auto-drafted Saquon Barkley, and now people are saying... (laughs) You should sit him for as long as possible. Giants definitely don't force it. And I'm on this side trying to figure out how to be unbiased in my take. So you tell me how I should feel about when Saquon should be out there. I mean, if he's on your fantasy team, you want him out there. Listen, I, I, I also have a fantasy team, and it's very hard for me to separate my feelings <laughs> in terms of uh, starting and sitting, but yeah, I look. I get the um, the element of caution, you know, from the Giants. I, I think it's you're sitting there and you're staring at 
a player who really has to be a foundational cornerstone for you. And I think the Giants are, are essentially saying to themselves, like, you know, they know if he if something goes wrong here, you know, if this if this goes sideways, um, not only is all the scrutiny gonna be landing on the coaching staff, um, and the general manager who's already under intense pressure this season, but beyond that you start to wonder where is the direction of this guy's career going? Um and you know, I so I think it's it's sort of the same situation with Kelly, Kenny Galladay. You know, they're they're like, okay, soft tissue injury. Like, if we push him too hard too early, you know, this is something that's going to linger the the entirety of the season. So it's better just to play it safe now. Plus, remember that like they're in the NFC East. Okay, like I, I don't, I know everybody. Hey, Dak's back in Dallas, and you know Washington's got this great defense, and um. You know, Phillies, we don't know if Phillies even going to be this year, but um, I, I would tend to believe that you can be a little conservative early. So I wouldn't be surprised if both um, Saquon and, and Kenny Galladay see a very uh, measured approach early on. I, I think Galladay's going to play, but I think, you know, you're going to see them ramp him up very, very slowly. Um, and, you know, Saquon, I don't I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of leaning like maybe they might, hold this back another week and just kind of make sure he's a hundred percent before they stick him out there. All right, Charles, but in fairness here, that offensive line is just hot garbage for the the giants. And we all know it. So how are we supposed to evaluate Saquon or more importantly, this season, Daniel Jones, when realistically they have to start making decisions about the quarterback and they don't have a great way to keep him protected. I, I wish I could answer that. I mean, I guess, you know, you look at what he's doing in the building, how he's practicing, you know, what they're saying. I, it's, it's, see, this is the impossibility. It's interesting because, you know, something that um, I thought Mike McCarthy talked about as Dallas opened their camp, and, he, and, and, you know, to him, he was sort of talking about, hi, this is almost the first season for him because last year that offensive line fell apart so badly. It was hard to really evaluate almost anything that was going on in offense. And, you know, the Giants are, are in a similar, you know, situation where it's not even injuries and that line is, it's profuse at this point. I mean, it's just, uh, it's profusely bad at this point. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's, they're in a tough spot. And, and again, you know, I go back to Dave Gettleman and, and the, the pressure that he's under there. I, you would think, particularly when you have a quarterback and a running back, that was supposed to be your tandem, right? That's once you fix that, you're you're like oh, build up front, make sure we protect um, these guys as as best as possible. And yet, the Giants have repeatedly yeah. failed on that front. It's, and it's been a long time. Me personally, yeah, yeah. If, look, if if you see firings, if you see Dave Gettleman go out the door, I think the number one um, issue for Dave has, has been that he cannot resolve that offensive line. And by the way, if you look through his past, I mean, he's had, he's had issues in the past, really making the right calls on, on some past offensive line situations too. Yahoo Sports senior NFL reporter Charles Robinson is with us on the Goodyear hotline here on Spain and Fitz. I want to get to a bunch more with you, so we'll keep it moving here and move on to the Bucks' expectations. Um, can you find flaws with this team? Because I tend to see when everybody is screaming and yelling about how something is a sure thing, I'm always wondering where the bottom's going to drop out. Where would it drop out with these bucks? You know, it's a, it's a good question because they're, I, I think you look at the division, they're clearly the class of, of their division. You know, they return everybody. I, I thought Gio Bernard, frankly, I, you know, he's banged up, obviously coming out of the preseason, but I really thought Gio Bernard was a bigger addition than people 
maybe fully understand there because he fits so well with what, you know, Tom has done in the past with running backs. And um, it's, I don't know, maybe, you know, you look at defensively up front. There is, obviously, look, you, you return all the starters, but there's, you know, there's some age, particularly up front defensively. And so maybe you're like, well, maybe they don't, you know, the pass rush falls off. You know, maybe the ability to pressure opposing quarterbacks, which is going to be extremely important, um, you know, when the playoffs roll around. And, and I don't know that they could go through the run that they went through last year and then face, let's say, a, a Kansas City team that has a completely revamped offensive line in, in the Super Bowl, something like that. And all of a sudden, the, the pass rush. We, I, to me, personally, if I look at that Super Bowl, um, had a chance to watch it again, you know, in the middle of the offseason, and – I mean, that was the story of the game. I mean, it was their front versus just Kansas City's offensive line falling apart. But that's the thing. Like, if, is it truly failure? Say this comes, you know, it comes home to roost, but, I mean, it would probably happen in the playoffs or maybe the Super Bowl. I don't know. I don't know if you could sit there and say that's a failure. But um, it's hard for me to look at that that team and, and find any holes considering they've returned everybody. I thought Bernard was a, a good addition and, I'm not even going to talk about Tom anymore. You know, I don't even know. Like every, <laughs> all right, you know, all right. Like, Fitz, oh, don't let him talk about Tom. Yeah, no, don't let him talk about Tom. We're out on top. We're out on top. All right, so Charles Robinson joining us, uh, Yahoo Sports senior NFL reporter. Uh, let's stick with quarterbacks, though, in uh, that same conference. I- I'm trying to figure out Matt Stafford, Sean McVay. Look, Sean McVay is supposed to be the quarterback whisperer. Matt Stafford was supposed to be, you know, better than the Lions ever let him be. So the two of them together equals... I mean, they think it's going to be huge. I when I went through there and I had some time to to talk to you know Sean McVay, I was like, "Is this? Do you look at this guy like he is an MVP caliber quarterback? He's unequivocally wasn't he? I mean, barely got it out of that mouth." McVay's like, "Yes, absolutely." He's like, "His skill set is off the charts. He is a he has an MVP level skill set." Um, and he and you know Sean McVay was like, "Look, if if this doesn't work out, you know, it's it's on me." He's like, "It's not." because he doesn't have the talent to do it. He said he's, his age is not a – he's in his wheelhouse right now. He's in his prime. And, you know, I, t- I tend to believe McVay loved him. You know, I've talked to Kyle Shanahan in the past about Stafford. He loves him. You know, Sean Payton loves him. I'm like, geez, this is a lot of, like, pretty bright offensive minds and guys that work well with quarterbacks, and they all love Matt Stafford. So if this goes sideways, I, I don't know, maybe the offensive line, you know, doesn't really work out. That's definitely something that, you know, they, they are a work in progress in front of Stafford. But – um, for all intents and purposes, they believe he should be in the MVP conversation. And I'll tell you what, when Cam Akers went down, you know, the the gist coming out of that camp was take the over on whatever the number of uh, pass attempts by Matt Stafford is this season. He's going to be cranking it. So I would not be surprised if he puts up and – and the guy's already had a ton of numbers in his career, but I would not be surprised yeah. if this is one of those years where he just blows it out. Charles Robinson is with us here on Spain and Fitz. We're running out of time, but I wanted to stick with that general idea. Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury, a lot of people saying yeah. this is a huge season for Kingsbury yep. in terms of expectations. What do you? Uh, that's a really tough division, even if they improve. Yeah, it's no, it is. It absolutely is for Cliff. Like I, I think you go back to last season and watch the last eight games. It was not pretty. Like it was rough, and and a lot of it was Cliff, and a lot of it was the offense, and. Um, I, I don't know. I, I personally think Cliff's a, a hot seat guy. I think if, if they do not show some significant strides on offense, I think people are really going to start to pile on Cliff. And as you said, remarkably difficult. You know, um, it, It's a tough division, and they're going to have their hands full every time out. And, you know, I, I think the question is, 
and I would pay close attention to Kyler Murray, if Cliff struggles this year, you the guy who saves him, the guy who says, hey, look, no, this is my guy, and, and it's, it's not a coach problem, it's going to be Kyler Murray, you know, if, if, because some of that pressure is going to be on Kyler as well. And um, I, I think Cliff's offense, I'm, I'm telling you, if you just look at the last eight games they played last year, he was, it was not getting it done. And you can explain that through a lot of different, you know, mediums on that offense, but it's, it's, that's what Cliff was brought in to do. If he can't get that done, he's he's gonna be out. Like I really believe that's an underrated story that Cliff Kingsbury's on the hot seat. Awesome stuff. We could always talk to you more. We'll have to have you back soon. Thanks so much for the insight and enjoy uh, enjoy the first game on Thursday. Thanks, Charles. Absolutely. Good luck with good luck with Saquon. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. It's very important to me that I destroy everybody in fantasy. Speaking of, we had a fantasy draft for Spain and Fitz last night. We're gonna get to that. By the way, follow him at Charles Robinson. Always awesome stuff on the season. He's always going to give you the straight talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. An interesting story involving a bitter rival of Fitz's Raiders and a fantasy draft that nearly didn't happen at all. It's coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain, Fitz, two members of the already ill-fated Spain and Fitz Fantasy League. No take, Max. Well-named. Because yeah, it is Fitz's well Jerky Raiders tried to call up the Bears and take back Khalil Mack. No take Mack, man. Never heard of him. We're hanging he, on to he, him. This guy, never heard it's of ESCN that guy. Radio, ESCN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Uh, some related news from Spain and Fitz Nation as Angry Bears fan dad man, Angry Bears FDM, just hit us up with a, with a uh, GIF recapping his attempt to fix all the technical difficulties in our draft last night. He hit us up on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed. Uh, we will get into why last night's issues were almost entirely him, but also Shea Pepler Cornette's fault. Uh, but in the meantime, don't forget <laughs> to download the Overheard podcast for curiously delightful conversations overheard around National Geographic's headquarters, presented by the City Advantage Platinum Select card, the card built for your next adventure. The fantasy adventures in a moment. But first, this was some news today we didn't expect. We went on a little adventure through an L.A. Times story that talked about last year, if you remember, Fitz, and how could we forget? Because I spent several segments, full segments, 15, 30 minutes at a time, trying to explain the differences in the situation with the Broncos and their quarterback close contact issues, preventing them from having a a roster of quarterbacks to play, and why the league decided not to move their game versus other teams and how it all went down. I spent... Probably hours of my lifetime cumulatively trying to explain it. I was right then, and I'm even more right now, because the L.A. Times (laughs) story about how the NFL had a backup plan in case COVID-19 messed up the season included this tidbit. John Elway, Denver's president of football operations, made several frustrated pleas to Goodell to postpone the Sunday game until Tuesday when the quarterbacks would be available. The league denied those requests because surveillance video from Denver's facility showed the quarterbacks had tried to fool the system. They had removed their contract tracing devices and put them in the four corners of the meeting room. Then they sat together to watch film. That close contact automatically made them ineligible to play. It just reinforces what we already knew, but to another degree fits because they were intentionally trying to buck the system, not realizing that there was surveillance and putting their entire team at risk and ultimately themselves. And they caused the fact that that poor guy whose name I already learned and forgot had to go out there and complete two total passes and hadn't been a quarterback since high school. 
I mean, the thought of just sitting around and being like, all right, we can get away with this. Like, I don't really understand, especially because they're able to go back and review the footage, obviously, right? So, like, they knew that they were doing it. Like, there's a moment of who did you think you were going to fool and how did you think it was going to work? And if you're Elway and you know that, that one or two things, you either know they did it and you're trying to pull one over on the league or everybody's pulling one over on you. Either way, that's not a great look for Elway. Right. So I, or your I can't quarterback imagine. coach or anybody right. else that was in that room that was okay with that. It doesn't matter whether you can get away with it. What you're saying is we don't believe that this COVID thing is an issue. We're going to oh, go yeah. ahead and take all the protocols that you put into place because of what the experts said. We're going to reject them. And guess what? Exactly what you think is going to happen. Somebody comes in with COVID and now you're all out. Yeah, well, and then you're turning around looking for the league asking for help when, right. you know, at, at that point you sank yourself. And, and I think it was stunning to see that, to see that level of workaround. As much as you know it happens, just seeing it was, was jaw-dropping. Also jaw-dropping to me in that article to read about the league having essentially a, a top-secret plan that no one knew about of a 10-game schedule. So, so mm-hmm. often we were asking, and I, I found myself last fall repeatedly on sports beats and things like that saying, you know, when is the league going to tell us what their backup plan is? Well, they had one the whole time, and even most of the owners in the league weren't aware of that backup plan. So it shows you sort of how clandestine everything is that they do. Yeah, it is true, and I think what Roger Goodell's explanation was in the LA Times piece was we didn't just didn't want everyone talking about it all the time, and I think that makes sense. It's good to have a backup plan. It's good to have a plan in place if things go awry, but it's not necessary at every turn to have talking gas bags like us offer up, well, is this the time that they should do that? Oh, we should do that now, right? Every market whose team has a stumble is going to say, oh, let's go to this plan now. Um, But I do think it's worth remembering this around the league. Because people are much more at ease this year than last year around COVID and the effects of it because of vaccinations. Now that does give you a, 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 a modicum of, of, of you know, feeling better because there are few breakthrough cases because there's such a small percentage of vaccinated who are getting it and spreading it. But Ed Werder talked about Zach Martin and reminded everybody in the NFL and think about those Denver people who were already flouting the rules back then. If they try to do that this year, they could be in trouble. Here's what Ed Werder said. This is a reminder because remember, the Cowboys are a team that all the coaches are vaccinated and 93 percent of the players are vaccinated. So they only had five or six unvaccinated players on their team. And yet they've had, I think, in the last week and a half since Dan Quinn uh, the defensive coordinator, uh, you know, showed up with a positive test hours before uh, the third preseason game. I think they've had nine guys either test positive or be deemed uh, close contacts. That's more than they had all of last year in the entire season. So you're right. It is a reminder about what a challenge this uh, virus still remains, even though we have the vaccination, the vaccine now, and we've got teams that have very high percentages of players vaccinated. And Fitz, this isn't about a failure of vaccinations, which, if you know anything, you know that they have never been promised to prevent it. They help you fight it and most likely keep you from getting it as well, but it's not guaranteed. This is not a failure of vaccinations. This is a failure of holding up to protocols and remaining cautious and safe around the vaccine that is very much still among us. And and that is actually a bigger concern, I would say, the NFL maybe for this year than last year because you see Trevor Lawrence going back to Clemson during this long weekend. You see, you know, players engaging in, in massive parties and things like that. This, this is going to be a story all year still, I think. Well, and Chris Mortensen tweeted out yesterday, 
talked or texted with number of NFL coaches and execs who were nervous about COVID-19 testing today with the number of players who visited their former college teams opening games and social gatherings this past weekend. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right that as people continue to feel comfortable and and this is why, you know, what's what's going to be interesting in my mind is that the NFL players are going to have to decide many of them are going to have to decide to treat this season no differently than they treated last year with isolation even though they're vaccinated, which is incredibly frustrating for the players to hear, I'm sure, but it might be the only way to keep yourself safe to make sure that you can actually go play the games. 100%. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we will keep you updated on how that story goes. Also, quickly, very quickly, we have squandered the time for me to blame people for the fantasy draft mishap last night, but I was intentionally not the commissioner. We made listener, Angry Bear Shand Adman, the commissioner, uh, as entry into the league, we, we found another listener to join. And as we were ramping up for the league with mere minutes to go, an hour, uh, an hour to go, uh, half of y'all weren't even registered, including you, Fitz. So thanks for waiting for the last minute. Shea Pepler apparently got the invite but couldn't find it. Jordan Cornette's email was wrong, which was... Angry Bears fan dad man's fault. And I somehow became the commissioner where I'm helping all of you sign up and we're changing the draft time. And listen, I feel like I should just get an automatic hundred points to start for all the work I did. Is everyone in? Yeah, uh, no. No, nope, no, nope, nope, like nope, automatic no, yeah. win my first week nope. and win my first playoff match and win at least just a hundred dollars off the top. No. You know what? Instead we'll give you a really good job. You know what? Coming up, Cy Young? <laughs> Max Scherzer, collision course, we'll let you know. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We were certain that the Dodgers were going to hand the Giants two, three losses, and Giants were going to continue to struggle with health through September, and instead it was the Giants who emerged victorious in the series. Got a super tightly packed wild card race, and somehow, someway, on Tuesday, September 7th, we're on the eve of a Hall of Fame induction. We're going to figure it all out with our favorite MLB guest here on Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And Tim Kirkshen joins us on the Goodyear Hotline. Tim, let's start with, I have to admit, a Hall of Fame induction ceremony that really snuck up on me as I prepare myself for the football season. Uh, what do we have to look forward to tomorrow? Well, it'll be a great day. It's always a great day for the induction. I've probably covered 10 of them in my time, and every single one of them was special in its own way. We're going to see Larry Walker, Derek Jeter, Ted Simmons, Marvin Miller. It's it's a great group going in. And, of course, uh, Jeter will be the headliner, but uh, it's a great group, and I – even though this is in September and it's on a Wednesday, I don't even think that's going to take away from what a great week, uh, what a great event this is. That place will be packed. It'll be tremendous. Tim, one of the best parts about watching any Hall of Fame ceremony are the stories. Is there one particular person you're looking forward to seeing what, the, what story comes out from? Did we lose Tim? Either that, maybe it just hated my question. I mean, it's possible, it wasn't you know? great. Uh, you know, it could have well, been better. You know. um, we will try to reconnect <laughs> with Tim. You know what I was looking at, too, uh, quickly? 
in, in, in regards to the Hall of Fame tomorrow, there was a story on the New York Times that was addressing the fact that 15 years ago, the Hall of Fame inducted 17 people from the Negro Leagues. There was this big um, conference room collection of folks looking back at all 39 leagues and, and pre-Negro Leagues players, managers, executives. How could they all you know come together to figure out who was going in? And that special committee on African-American baseball righted some of the wrongs, and, and now they've been mostly silent. You know, we saw that the statistics of the Negro Leagues went into baseball annals this past year, but not a lot of conversation about the Hall of Fame and any more revisiting of those who who belong. And, and I was it was interested if, if Tim had thoughts on that as well, because, you know, it feels like you can't make one big, strong gesture and then say, all right, we handled that, wipe our hands of it and move on, you know? I mean, in, in that, that is an interesting. We've got Tim back, so uh, we should ask him. Yeah, Tim, quickly, I, I was reading a New York Times story about how the Hall of Fame had that special committee on black baseball and inducted 17 people 15 years ago and has been largely silent on it since. Is there a revisiting of, of that group of people for more inductions, you think? Um, I'm sure there will be. I'm not sure it's going to be tomorrow, but, um, you know, the Negro League, has been, you know, added to the major league statistics. Uh, it's a very difficult process. It's going to take a lot of time, but it's just another reminder how that's been a forgotten part of baseball and anything we can do to remind people of how great the, you know, how great that baseball was back then is really, really important. We're talking to ESPN Major League Baseball insider Tim Kirchin. Tim, so let's switch to some of the action we're seeing on the field right now. Tell me why the Yankees can't beat the Orioles. <laughs> yeah, well, that's really bizarre. I think the Orioles have four wins against one team and seven against the Yankees. That's their most against any team. Again, this is the beauty of baseball. I've always said this. Bad teams beat good teams all the time in this sport, whereas no bad team went into Chicago Stadium and beat Michael Jordan and the Bulls. No bad team mm-hmm. ever went to Golden State and beat, you know, Steph and Clay and, and KD on the road. They just didn't happen. But in baseball, the beauty of the sport is um, the great players aren't the great players every single night. They don't dominate every game. So there's no explanation for how the Orioles could have won that many games <laughs> against the Yankees this year. It's just the beauty of baseball. On the one hand, it's great for you, Tim, because at any point you could be like, that's baseball when your analysis sucks, but it also sucks because people are always going to ask you to preview series and make your predictions, and it's so hard in baseball. This is what we just saw with the Dodgers and the Giants. We were all certain that the Giants were starting to stumble, and then they take two of three from a Dodgers team that looks you know, stronger than ever with the post-trade deadline acquisition. So baseball continues to confound, and so does the wild card race. Talk to me about what we've seen. The Red Sox, a 500 team in their last 10, while the Blue Jays are streaking. The Mariners are right there, and they're all just a half a game or three and a half in the case of the Blue Jays and Mariners back from the Yankees that we just mentioned. How do you see all that playing out? Well, it's going to be great. I did the Red Sox Rays game yesterday, which was <laughs> one of the worst, best, stupidest games ever. The, the Red Sox played so badly yesterday. <laughs> makes you wonder how could they possibly make the playoffs losing a game like they did yesterday. And yet, Alex Cora always seems to galvanize that team when things go wrong. And same with the Yankees. I've counted them out of the playoff race about three times privately this year. And they keep battling back. So I'm just going to say the Yankees are going to play the Red Sox in the wild card game. 
And we have to hope everything lines up for Garrett Cole against Chris Sale. That's where I think it's going. But you know, the Blue Jays won five in a row and eight out of nine. And they, they are so dynamic offensively. The Mariners have played much better lately. The A's are still a really good team. But I'm going to take the teams that are ahead right now and think they're going to hang on because they've, they've hung on during a lot of bad stretches, both the Red Sox and the Yankees this year. What about uh, Sarah mentioned the Dodgers and obviously Max Scherzer uh, has had some uh, success there. Is he in the Cy Young conversation to you? And then what's it look like for the Dodgers the rest of the way? Yeah, he's in the conversation. He's got a two twenty eight ERA. He's got over two hundred strikeouts. He's thirteen and four. He's made seven starts for the Dodgers. They've won all seven, and it's going to be a great National League Cy Young race. But Max Scherzer is right in the middle of it now. As for the Dodgers, their pitching is spectacularly good, but Clayton Kershaw is going to throw a, a side session, and we're going to see how far along he is here in the next couple of days. If he comes back, and the Dodgers expect him to, to join the rotation in October, and you have Walker Bueller, Kershaw, Scherzer, and Julio Urias, who's 16-3 and three and is nasty, those four can, can match any four in baseball, and they got a really good offense. So the Dodgers are a great team right now, and I think they're going to even be better when October begins. The great Tim Kirkshen, ESPN MLB insider, is with us here on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. Before we let you go, I have to ask, the season ends today. Who are your MVPs? Um, it's really hard, Sarah, but I'm going to say Otani's the MVP in the American League, even though his team is not really a contender and he's, he's had a pretty bad stretch here the last nine or ten games. But he, he's had the most incredible season that any of us has ever seen. So I think he's going to be the MVP, even though there are a lot of other good candidates. But I think Otani just overwhelms everyone with uh, because no one's ever done what he's doing this year. National League is much, much closer. I still have Fernando Tatis Jr. as the MVP, but there are a bunch of really strong candidates, including Joey Votto. But uh, the Padres have been in contention all year. They're not a great offensive team, and they're only as good as they are because Tatis has been so good. So I'm going to go with him, but the next three weeks will tell you who the MVP is going to be in the National League. But I just at this point don't see a significant shift in the American League. Hey, real quick on Tatis Jr., what do you make of him foregoing surgery that everyone's saying he desperately needs, there's no way around it, and he says, I'm good for now? Well, he's going to need surgery. He just didn't want to have it during the season. And I, I totally understand he can still hit, he can play the outfield with that shoulder, but eventually they're going to have to do something and get it fixed completely. Yeah. He's just going to have to find the right time to do that Maybe the offseason, I think a lot will depend how the Padres do the rest of this year, and then he's going to have to make a, a difficult decision. Awesome stuff, Tim. Always appreciate the insight. Enjoy the Hall of Fame induction tomorrow. Thanks, Tim. Okay, see, see you guys. Tune in to an NL battle tomorrow night as the Cardinals host the Dodgers. Coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to Spain and Fitz. Coming up, a little good take, hot take, and one of these is a take you won't believe. It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Major NFL executives picking award winners for 2021 on ESPN+. 
MVP, top rookies, player of the year, etc. We're going to do a little of our hot take, good take here. But instead of playing sound from gas baggy analysts, we're going to take a look at the takes of those who put the teams together and make the decisions. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. We also have a fantasy update later in the show as we have had an expert grade our draft from last night, and I am dying to hear what my trash team is going to get in terms of a grade. But first, the, oh no, hold on, wait a minute, Fitz. Before we get to the executive picks, I have a take. It is just too hot. I can't even Ooh, wait. Okay. I can't even save it, especially after hearing your take on the Bucks on your sports beat all day today on ESPN Radio. Let's toss to the open and get this started. Time to cut through the BS and rate the best takes of the day. Are they good takes? He would be the best quarterback in the history of New York to land here. Or hot takes? Hot takes. Just take the damn ball and let him decide. But that's not the Green Bay way. Find out now on Spain and Fitz. That's right. Good take, hot take. And we have to start with one talking about the Bucks season. You were saying all day that people need to stop just assuming they're going to win it all again. Well, Tony Gonzalez, Hall of Famer, was on Greedy and Fitz. He went a step further than that. This to be one of the best teams, if not the best team in NFL history. And they got everybody coming back. I, and and a, like you said, for all the reasons, they got a year underneath their belt now with that offense and Tom Brady pulling the trigger. I don't see anybody, anybody beating this team. And I don't see how you could. It, it's it's almost unfair. Okay. That is good. <laughs> Tony Gonzalez, you have lost your mind. Like, I, I, I get it, NFL Hall of Famer. I get the greatness of your career. You have lost your mind. If you are out tonight celebrating your 21st birthday, in your lifetime, you've seen one champion repeat. In your entire lifetime, if you're out having drinks tonight, turn to 21, one time you've seen it. We're talking about this like it happens every time. And, like, we're forgetting that at Super Bowl Sunday, it was, oh, the Chiefs are going to be back-to-back champions. Nobody can beat Patrick Mahomes. Well, somebody did, and his name was Brady. Like, we're just going to forget that that only happened happened a few months ago and we're also going to forget that the Buccaneers were challenged in the playoffs like we're just pretending like the Buccaneers ran roughshod through the entire NFL and they were unstoppable this is a Bucs team that in the regular season almost lost to the Falcons it's a Bucs team that was challenged by the Washington football team in the playoffs they were at least challenged by the Saints they were challenged by the Packers they won the Super Bowl and that's great but that doesn't mean they're going to go undefeated that's that's just a trash take that's not even a hot take that's a garbage take okay you are so effusive that i have invented a bottom of our show doc that says spain and fitz hot takes to save for a later date on this day 9 7 21 8 19 p.m eastern fitz on tony gonzalez saying the box could be undefeated just in case i've got it there just in case he's right and if not of course yeah, we it, will just prove that you are right but you were ready for that you came and win the super bowl I will get both of my nipples pinched on national TV, pierced on national TV. I was going to say, we can go a little bit more than pinched. All right, pierced. I'm writing that down, too. Nipples pierced on national TV. pierced on TV. You know what you just did? You just did the thing that we always ask on this show. Why do they do that? Why do radio people insist on saying stuff like, I'll eat a bird or a horse poop or whatever, and you just did it. You're going to get your nipples pierced. Just something else you won't pay off. Yeah, 100. No, it's written down. 
It's uh, it's written we've down. got it in it's writing. You're we've right. got it in audio. I now realize that I did. You're right. I made you a bet the against no one. It's the you dumbest thing you can no do one. in radio. And I, no I, I walked was, into stupidity. No one was There's a wall of invisible you. stupid and I hit it. Go big or go home, man. Oh, that's what happens with Good Take Hot Take. It's Bain and Fitz. He's the future double Pierce Jason Fitz. Who knows what else has already gotten pierced. He was a musician back in the day. That's nothing for him. Let's go through this Jeremy Fowler piece Ooh. on ESPN Plus with the execs picking the awards. We'll say whether we think it's a good take or a hot take. Let's start with the MVP. The uh, folks in the conversation, Patrick Mahomes and Matthew Stafford, but according to the consensus of the experts, Josh Allen of the Buffalo Bills. Good take or hot take? I think that's a good take, actually. I mean, A, Josh Allen is spectacular. B, they put enough spectacular pieces around him and see I'm really high on the bills plus there's so much momentum so often the, the MVP conversation seems to be a little bit about who everybody's invested in from the start of the season and I feel like Josh has a little bit of a head start I mean we've overcorrected on this we went from Josh Allen can't play to now Josh Allen is the next great thing so there's probably some you know Goldilocks level in the middle but I think it's a good take uh, I think it's a good take as well And I would like to remind you and everybody else that I was on the Josh Allen train well before you all when you were complaining about those errant plays. And I was saying, yes, sometimes he forgets how to football, but the rest of the time, I think he's going to be great. And he is. I can absolutely see him taking MVP honors. Next player, Christian McCaffrey, according to the execs, leading the way for Offensive Player of the Year. Above the others, creating buzz, Devontae Adams, Stephon Diggs, and Darren Waller. Now that I've said someone from the Raiders, I know exactly what you're going to do, but what do you think of Christian McCaffrey as the Offensive Player of the Year? I actually think this is a good take. And All right, look, look at it's part, you. It's part of the reason I think we're going to be having a different conversation about Sam Darnold by the end of the year. I mean, you put him with Christian McCaffrey and you get back there in the overused phrase of the day, let him cook. That's what we all say now. You let Sam Darnold cook when he's cooking with that sort of a a key ingredient. I'm all in on this. I think Christian McCaffrey is going to have a massive year and it's going to make Darnold look good. All right. I think it's a good take for Christian McCaffrey. Uh, I do not know yet if Sam Darnold can cook. I think so far we've seen him heat things up in the microwave, so I don't know if letting him cook is exactly what I would use to describe what Sam Darnold's going to do this year. I'm going to wait and see on that one. I think that's a hot take from you. Hot like the oven where he puts something in to reheat it, and that's about it. All right, Defensive Player of the Year. Getting some buzz, Von Miller of the Broncos, Miles Garrett, Jalen Ramsey, but the consensus from the execs, T.J. Watt of the Steelers. This is, of course, interesting because we're talking mostly about his contract, and if they could figure it out, he's only done individual drills, hasn't been with the team for team things so far. But a lot of people believe that T.J. Watt could be someone who steals it from the presumptive winner every year, Aaron Donald. Yeah, that's a hot take uh, because – I think at the end of the day, the Rams with the reinvigorated offense and Sean McVay reestablishing himself as the, the great quarterback mind in the NFL. That's all said with dripping sarcasm. But there is some element of that that will be true. And as a result, uh, there's even less pressure on that defense. Aaron Donald, I think, is going to be the MVP, defensive MVP for sure. He's, just, he's still the most talented defensive player in the league. I do think it's more likely Aaron Donald's. I think that's a hot take. I'm just not quite ready to see T.J. Watt as that disruptive a player just yet. And I'm definitely confused about the Von Miller selection. He has not been in peak form for a number of years. And with the health yeah. stuff and off and on, things were a little strange this offseason and last year. Uh, I would like to see him be back to his best, but not so sure about that one. All right, let's finish quickly with the Offensive Rookie of the Year. If you had to pick one, Mac Jones or Trevor Lawrence? Trevor Lawrence. 
Uh, interestingly, also people saying Jalen Waddle, Najee Harris, and a lot of the experts are thinking Zach Wilson's going to have the best year. I'm going to go Justin Fields. He's going to get out oh. there. He's going to start to change the game for everybody watching. It's going to be amazing. Everyone's going to be like, wow, they were so smart to let him sit a game or two. Justin Fields, uh, definitely no bias in that one. Coming up, what do we learn from college football this weekend? It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Don't forget ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance with insurance for cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and commercial vehicles at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE and Progressive.com. Now, I'll tell you in just a few minutes, we've had an expert come in and grade each of us respectively in our fantasy draft. So we'll see how we did on that. Plus, uh, we'll get into a little gambling in a few minutes. I'm not going to brag or anything, Sarah, but there were two things I said that I would I would bet on this week. I did. I made money on both of them. I'm just wow. saying I'm on a roll. I know. I know. I'm on a roll. That's what happens early. Then I lose it all. Uh, but before we get to any of that, we have actual football on the field to talk about. So we're joined now on the Goodyear Hotline by collegefootballnews.com's Pete Futak. Pete, thanks for, so much for the time, man. I appreciate you. I, I, I'm trying to break down everything we saw with some level of reason without hot takery. So when you think about the, the big storylines, the Clemson, the George, all that stuff, what's the thing that really stood out to you as the most significant that we saw over the course of the weekend? How's it going, you two? Uh, the most significant thing to start, well, if you're in your gambling world, as you were mentioning, and you want to make money, is that the unders destroyed this weekend. It was something crazy, like like 48 and 20. Okay, so really, the, the defense is right out of the gate. I mean, we knew Georgia and Clemson was going to be a tight defensive battle, and crazy enough, it kind of went exactly like it was supposed to. But Penn State and Wisconsin was a defensive fight. North Carolina and Virginia Tech was a defensive fight. Even Ole Miss played a little defense last night. So it seems like early on, the defenses after a year of whatever that was in 2020 and with a full season, uh, full off season to figure it out, they've kind of tried to adjust, recruit, go through the transfer portal, and get the guys to combat all these high-powered offenses, at least for now. But um, with, with that, that Georgia defense just looks like it's going to be the truth. And if you look at their schedule going forward, as long as they don't biff, there's Florida, and that's about it. And they got over the one hurdle they needed to get over, and if this defense can keep doing that, and if Georgia gets its receivers back and healthy, then all of a sudden this looks like one of those teams that's going to be on its way to uh, really, really big things, and then it'll play Alabama in the SEC championship. <laughs> Pete, let's talk about LSU. I don't want to take anything away from U- uh, UCLA. They had a nice, balanced offense. You know, they could be better than expected, but this feels more like an LSU loss than a UCLA win. They've lost six of their last 11. They've given up 34 or more points in their past four games. They were 5-5 five and five last year, and by the looks of it, both of their new coordinators – were completely confused by what was going on. What did you make of yeah, LSU's loss? Yeah. Well, yeah, third, yeah, the third, third year and three coordinators in three years. But it, it was a. I give a little more credit to UCLA on this, and uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons we can throw at, at why LSU wasn't better at, on Saturday, and uh, certainly all the all the outside external things that were happening in Louisiana, you know, was a little bit. But give it to UCLA that they're just good. And 
they're li- it took a few years for UCLA to get the lines up and going. And it kind of went under the radar a little bit only because Chip Kelly does not recruit the five-star guys. He, he recruits to a type. He got the guys that kind of fit what he likes to do. And sure enough, here's the rebuild. I mean, this is, this is it coming together. And also don't discount that it's week one and all teams are a little ragged in their first week. And UCLA got that out of its system against Hawaii, where Hawaii's a pretty good team and it got rocked and Dorian Thompson-Robinson was bad. So he got the bad game out of the way, get the timing down, and then you get LSU. I think that turned out to be a huge advantage as that game went on. But you're right. Now LSU, yay, now you get to play in the SEC West. That is a rough run for the Tigers, but they've got the guys, they've got the talent, and they've got two NFL starting corners that have to be a whole lot better than they were on Saturday. We're talking to Pete Futak. You can check him out on collegefootballnews.com. And, uh, yeah, uh, of note, the SEC 12-2 and two over the course of the weekend, by the way. 12-1 and one if we just take Vandy out because they're barely a football program. So, uh, Pete. Uh, re- Three points against East Tennessee State isn't enough for you? I mean, I, I knew it was going to be bad. I didn't think it was going to be that Ooh. bad. So, Oklahoma Ooh. came out and struggled a little bit against Tulane, obviously. It came down to the onside kick. I, I mean, it was an exciting ending to that game. Uh, in your mind, is that Oklahoma having, to your point, to knock a little rust off, or are there concerns about the Sooners, too? I would tell you and give you real hardcore analysis on this if I had seen it. I don't know how it happened, but I have four screens going on a college football Saturday and a bunch of other feeds coming in. And for some reason, I missed the whole thing and didn't know. I was like, oh, Oklahoma's winning easily. Uh, but, yes, I went back and kind of saw. And, uh, yeah, again, week one, they took their foot off the gas. And they did this last year, too, a little bit at times. But they held on. That defense is going to be a whole lot better than that as the season goes on. Spencer Rattler was great. He was fine. The running game was good. It was, and Tulane's all right, and they just kind of kept playing. It also speaks to the other thing that we always forget about once college football starts, especially compared to the, you know, the crisp, brisk NFL games. These college football games take forever. You know, the half times are a half an hour. The timeouts take for forever. These are four-hour games. And it's just kind of hard to maintain the intensity and focus for that long, especially right out of the gate. And it seems like that's exactly what happened at the very end there, where they just felt like, okay, we got this game, let's move on. And they almost got tagged for it. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. We're talking to collegefootballnews.com's Pete Futak about week one of college football. Let's talk Notre Dame, Florida State. Notre Dame gets the win. Brian Kelly's clearly frustrated, makes a dumb joke, doesn't land, pretty forced. But also, what did you take away from them and the fact that they let Florida State back into that game? Oh, it's a great joke. He whiffed the line. And no, he didn't get set up for it, though. It, it was a great he, he, joke he, he, when you get set up for it. You it, can't deliver the line and the punchline. Or, or, to, or to deliver it in context. Right, yeah. right. Uh, well, it also, that I have never, I've seen a gajillion football games in my life. I've never seen a prevent run defense before. And that's kind of <laughs> what Notre Dame seemed to figure out how to do against Florida State. But, you know, get, again, long game. You know, it looked like that was over. It looked like Notre Dame had it. And, again, you know, this thing just kind of dragged on and on and on. And Florida State just didn't have to go away because the running game was working. But give a little credit to the, to the Seminoles and to Mike Norvell. That's what his offenses did at Memphis. Uh, they had a little more passing game that they've got there right now. But if you remember, that's where you got the Daryl Hendersons. 
Uh, and, you know, to a certain extent, Antonio Gibson, but not really. But they had uh, all sorts of great, you know, running backs who tore off big dashes after big dashes. That's what that offense does. And if they can do that, all of a sudden there's your identity. And that's really what you want to see if you're a Florida State fan. Obviously, it stinks to lose that game uh, in such an emotional heartbreaker when you, you – obviously the Bobby Bowden tributes and Mackenzie Milton coming on the field and everything that was around that game just set up so perfectly, you know, for some sort of storybook magical ending – uh, but it's Florida State, so of course there was a wide, it was wide left, but uh, it was, of course there was a missed kick that uh, uh, at the end to honor Bobby Bond. But it was look, the running game was great, and if you're a Florida State fan, you're really fired up right now. But yeah, okay, I see it. This is how this is going to work going forward. Pete, who do you think we're overreacting to the most after one week? I. I still, I'm still going to, I'm a power five snob, so I still think Cincinnati is being way overreacted to. Uh, <laughs> I do think the one team that we're going to know a lot about really quickly, Iowa State. Uh, I know Northern Iowa is, an, uh, was, is a uh, rivalry game, and Iowa State didn't play that poorly. They just couldn't seem to score. Uh, but 16 to 10 is not really what you want going into the Iowa game coming up. And now this matters. Now the pressure's on Iowa State. They've got a real team that's supposed to do big things, and yet Iowa was awesome for the first, you know, 25 minutes or so against Indiana and just, you know, kind of coasted on from there. So let's see what Iowa State does. And I also think we're overreacting, and it's going to be really fascinating to see what Washington does because they couldn't run the ball a lick against Eastern Washington. I, I, sorry, Montana in that uh, – uh, surprising loss on Saturday night. And Michigan, they looked great against Western Michigan. And so let's see if the Pac-12 can get a win back because Washington was supposed to be one of those teams that was going to contend for the Pac-12 title, and it still might, but it's got to get it back really, really quickly because that's a lot better of a team than it showed. Be sure to read him. Collegefootballnews.com is where you can get to him. Pete Futak, as always, we appreciate your time and your insight, my friend. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah, uh, anytime. You guys have a great night. Pete was brought to you by Goodyear, making the plays that move you forward. Goodyear, more driven. He mentioned Iowa, Iowa State. I was very wrong about Iowa. It leads to a great matchup. Game day is going to be there this weekend. First time ever in that rivalry that they have both been top 10 teams when they played each other. So you want to be sure to check that out. In the meantime, we did a fantasy draft last night. And because we know some fancy people, we got our teams graded. Find out how Field Yates oh thinks the two of us did specifically. You excited. This Plus, for you. Plus, I had two plays I told you to make over the weekend. They were both right. I'm going to brag. We'll do that next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Sarah, last week, I had two important college football takes that I repeatedly said over and over and over again. I said, look, LSU's going to lose to UCLA. Called it. I even called it on the shows. Like, there's actual me on show saying it. It's true. It happened. I felt really smart about that. And... What did I say on Friday? Hammered the under on Georgia versus Clemson. You I had sure a very did. successful weekend when it came to the gambling. If only I was willing to bet a sub- substantial amount of money, I would have made a substantial amount of money, but, but, but I bet a little, so that counts, right? Um, yes. You still won, and okay. you still led the people in the right direction. I, myself, am going to start dabbling a little more, dipping the toe in a little more. I'm going to learn how it all goes and how to do it, and I'm going to share with other 
sports fans that maybe have felt a little bit, uh, you know, unsure about entering the foray because other people have been doing it for so long. I feel sort of overwhelmed at times, unwelcome at times, but uh, this might be the year that I finally do a little more dabbling. Well, a survey has come out that says 36% more Americans expect to bet on the NFL compared to last season, which I think is interesting. came out from the American Gaming Association. said that 45.2 million Americans expected to bet on the NFL this season. I, that was a, a big number to me. Like, I, I know how popular gambling is, but I think seeing the actual 45.2 million was a little bit of a, a, a you know shaking moment for me to look at and see, wow, that, that explains why so many people talk about it at this point, because right. so many people are active with their cash. Yeah, I, I am not surprised by it because that's kind of how I am with it. Like, I stayed away largely because it was the underbelly, right? It was it was something where, first of all, I was like, I don't even know how I would find a bookie, not to mention, you know, trust one, not to mention, you know, give them information and yada yada. So so there's that element of it. And then the the influx of money and advertising and everything else not only means that you feel comfortable giving your bank info and that you're going to you know be playing fairly and everything's going to be regulated and you won't be done in by uh like i said again you know shady characters you also are more likely to find resources on how to get involved and i mean honestly that's my part of it is like I need people to explain it to me like from step one. When I ask people for advice and they start talking to me about, you know, stuff that I think is step 10, I'm like, all right, I'm out. I'm not doing it. And I think that the influx of money in all the different companies really allow people to like say, okay, I feel comfortable, you know, dipping a toe, then eventually going all the way in, but feeling like there's not a chance that I'm going to have the rug pulled out from under me, which is kind of what you felt before if you were involved in the shadier side of things. Well, and I feel like app design has become such a huge part of it without naming any specific apps. But uh, the way that it has become now where you can get out and you can get good app design that helps you understand what you're doing and what you're betting on and how much you're betting and what your return is. That's the I think some of it gets really confusing for a lot of people. And I know, you know, gamblers that have done this for years sort of laugh at this conversation, but it's a real one. You know, imagine if you're sitting down with somebody and you've never played Madden, but you're sitting down next to somebody that plays it every day. Well, uh, trying to explain the basics of it seems really difficult. Sometimes it feels like that's gambling a little bit. So I feel like the app design specifically to your point of being able to better understand it has helped in that process too. And that's why these companies are investing so much in technology. And mm-hmm. you know, we also see stadiums at this point integrating gambling direct into their stadiums. I think that's going to be a huge portion of it moving forward. And I, I, pers- I just wouldn't be surprised to see specific bets that you can only make in stadiums and ways to get people to get off their couches and into the, the stands where they can place right. more wagers and do more fun things. Well, and to that point, a lot of what's going to happen with streaming is going to be interesting because you can't have streaming delays and gambling, right? It's just right. it's just not it's just not something that complies. So that in-game immediate here's what's going to happen next is something you probably have to do on in person and then maybe I don't even know if you could do it with linear television, right? That's going to be really complicated what the lag time is and if there's any chance of impropriety there. So, yeah, I do think that there's some opportunities. There has just been approved a big sports book that's going to go in right next to to Wrigley and the Cubs. And I think they're going to really try to take advantage of being able to do some stuff right on site, um, which for me, as I'm still learning about the gambling world, I'm, I'm on, on the fence about it. I think it's awesome that – so many people are involved. I think it can be a lot of fun. I gambled for the first time this year on the Super Bowl, and I think I got 12 out of my 14 
bets correct, uh, which was very proud of. Uh, but I also don't know that I want all of my sports content to always be talked about through the gambling lens. Yeah, that, that there's a line on all of it, and that's in that sense, it's a little like fantasy football. By the way, the uh, 88 props for the Cowboys Bucks game on Will, William Hill is just that. That to me is overwhelming, right? Like 88 <laughs> right, right, is right. just feels like you too many. Find but, one you like, though. <laughs> yeah, it's like, but there's a moment with the. It, it feels a little bit like fantasy for a lot of people. For years, fantasy football was overwhelming, and even for us as a show, like we we are committed to not necessarily coming in and giving you you know boring random fanning fan, fan uh, conversations. From the fantasy standpoint, that being said, let's do that now. Right. Uh, as We're not we... normally, but we do have to address last night's draft. <laughs> well, yeah, because we had a draft last night. Spain and Fitz, has our, we have a league. We had a draft. And uh, I should point out to you that I have sent the pictures. And again, I, was, I, I just screenshot of both of our rosters. I sent them to the Great Field Yates. Now, it only had our starters. There wasn't a lot of depth there. I think one or two made it into the screenshot that were depth. But sent it to him, and I explained where I picked second in a snake draft and where you picked sixth in a snake draft. And Field looked at it, and uh, it took him all of 30 seconds to come back and give Sarah Spain an A for her What? Draft. An A. What? And then, and then I'm all excited. I'm like, oh, Field's giving out good grades. It's going to be good. I got a B. He is graded so Sarah Spain ahead of me. I'm so proud of myself. I, I literally, been, I, during the draft, was like, holy crap, I hate my team. This is a disaster. I literally went oppo of like, there's no good running backs each time I come up. So I'm just going to go opposite of everything everyone says and get all good players everywhere but the running back position. All right. Look at me. I mean, I, I feel like you have gum out and you have just, uh, you, you've nailed it. Uh, getting an A out from of this field, is yay. from field. Yeah. I mean, we should tell people our starters that you sent him so they know what we're referring to. My starting lineup, which received an A, uh, was Lamar Jackson. You hear the pride in her voice, by the way? Go I'm ahead, yeah. so excited. Lamar Jackson, DeAndre Swift, Mike Davis, Devontae Adams, Calvin Ridley, TJ Hawkinson, Daryl Henderson Jr., the Steelers defense, and Greg Zerline. I do have also a number of pretty solid people on my bench that you didn't send him. But I will say, as distraught as I was over the running back situation, I did feel like, okay, but the points I could be getting from that Lamar Jackson, Devonta Adams, Calvin Ridley, TJ Hawkinson quartet might make up for my terrible running backs. Yeah, I think I honestly think you did pretty well, and I don't think you did terrible with the running back position, particularly. I mean, DeAndre Swift was on my list. There were a couple of times that you were taking people that I was looking at for sure. Uh, I, I, uh, my B roster, as I got a B from Field Yates, uh, Ryan Tannehill, a quarterback, Dalvin Cook, Raheem Mostert at running back. Then I've got Terry McLaurin, friend of the show, yep. uh, Tyler Lockett at uh, wide receiver, and Kenny Galladay as my flex. Darren Waller at tight end. Feel good about that one. Colts is my defense because, frankly, I had to take one. And Daniel Carlson is my kicker, the Raiders kicker, mm. because kickers are kickers. Who cares? So, you know, there wasn't a lot of difference there on, on the points. I, I felt pretty good about my roster until Field gave me a B. Now I'm questioning everything. Well, it's not bad. I'm excited for Raheem Mostert. He's going to be wildly exciting to watch. I actually tried to get Terry McClure in front of the show in both of my leagues, and neither time did it just pan out timing-wise. Uh, I uh, I feel better now. This is a What a great way to end the show. And by the way, Jordan and Shea Cornett were the reason that the draft was held up. They did tell us on the Spain and Fitz Nation on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed that they showed up. Uh, But they were late. I'm just saying they they were were late. At least we got it in. Facepalm, facepalm, facepalm. I'm like, facepalm for me. I was the one holding your hands. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.